0: Michael Easley in Context. Previously on Michael Easley in Context. In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, Paul tells us, be patient with everyone. Oh, come on, Paul. Can't I be impatient just once in a while? Be patient with everyone. A great point. You can't make your flesh better. And now your host, Dr. Michael Easley. If you're like me and impatient, you can, oh, just be patient. Oh, okay. Why didn't I think of that? Why didn't I think of that? No, I'll just be patient. I'll wait happily. I leave. I don't wait. So he says, You're impatient. I go, No, I'm letting other people get ahead of the line. We're out of here. We'll go somewhere we don't have to wait. Be glad you're not married to me. The Holy Spirit. Is the only one who can change that. I have to cooperate with him. He won't force it on me. Five, showing tolerance or bearing with. Living worthy of our calling means being humble, means being gentle, means being patient, means being tolerant or bearing with tolerance is probably a poor word because the way our culture has muddied that word so the idea of bearing with or enduring or putting up with others we might say again paul's talking about the body of christ easiest way to understand that of course is in your home when your children are what terrible twos or terrible teens is what we really should talk about right how many of us parents have pulled our hair out raising children and going, we're imploring our children to do the right thing in the right way, and of course they do the wrong thing in the wrong way every time, right? And we expect them to listen, we expect them to obey, and we're, we're hammering, we're teaching, we're loving, we're encouraging, we're pri- giving them opportunities, all the things I never had. Boy, I play that card a lot. I never had these opportunities, you know, like that's going to help. Oh, thanks, Dad, thanks for giving me an opportunity to not have. I'm going to be a better son. I'll be a better daughter because you never had that opportunity. Where do I get off thinking it's going to change the way they think? And then when I get a little space from it, I realize, you know what? They're still growing. Why do I expect them to act like an adult when they're not an adult? That's a great shoe leather application of bearing with other people. Living worthy of our calling, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with others, last in love. Notice, in love, the affection, the esteem, the seeing others' worth, that they're important, that we do this sacrificially. Again, Stott writes, love is the final quality that embraces the preceding four and the crown and sum of all the virtues. Hundreds Perhaps thousands of times the Bible speaks of God's loving kindness, his compassion, he's slow to anger, he's merciful to all, he's abounding in loving kindness. His mercies never cease, all the things we know perhaps too well. Sacrificial love. Paul will later write in chapter 5 about husbands, love your wives, same word, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In 33 years of marriage and probably... 24 years of trying to teach marriage principles, I often tell the the husbands, I say, listen, let's forget all the instructions to the women and forget, for now, everything else you're worried about that the New Testament says about marriage. Just focus on one thing. Love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Stop right there. Christ died for his church. He didn't blame her he didn't complain about her on the cross he didn't say God give me another church that loves me he said forget them it's hard to love your wife like Christ loved the church because it means to die to self But in all those years of my own marriage as well as watching others, I will tell you this. Show me a husband who is trying, feebly and failing, no doubt, trying to love his wife sacrificially. I will show you a wife who more than likely is flourishing. It's the same with children. If we criticize them and nag them, they will not change. If we encourage them, they may change. It's the same in marriage. If I criticize and complain and pick at my wife, she's not going to change. She's going to get ensconced in her positions. But if I love her and I know her needs and I know her wants and I ask her a thousand times, what do you want? What do you need? What are we going to do in life? What's the next chapter? How do we want to live this when our kids are finally away from us? How do we want to enjoy life together? Always working on those questions. That's my role as the initiator in the marriage. Leadership is initiation. And you're initiating, you're asking, you're asking. And yes, she's going to hurt your feelings. And yes, she's going to say snippy things. And yes, she's going to whatever. Get over it. You're a male of the species. And the way God's designed you is to be an initiating leader who sacrificially loves. Show me a husband who begins to get this and I'll show you a marriage with hope when we position ourselves and get away. The same is applying here when Paul crowns this list, as Dot says, in love. We do these things in love. Love means i got to put somebody else in front of me, and i got to do it lovingly, not just, oh, I love you. Peter O'Brien writes, "...the believer bears with one another's weaknesses and failures." In the midst of tensions and conflicts, they show a lifestyle that is consistent with the divine calling. This kind of behavior can only spring from God's love. Living worthy of our calling means that we love. Well, this walking worthy has some results. Look at verses 3, 4, 5, and 6. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as also we were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The manner in which we live this worthy calling, we have five attitudes we've just looked at. We might summarize them. We live loving others patiently, humbly, Bearing with them kindly, now we're moving into the result of that is unity. Now even a casual reader can't miss the seven-fold repetition of the word one. It's a long study. It's a deep study. I'm going to give you a very quick overview of it. One body is the one church. And that day, Jew and Gentile, we might compare it to racially tense groups today that hate each other. The Jew and the Gentile were reconciled. That was the church when Paul's penning this. We're one spirit. The spirit of the person of Christ indwells the believer individually in this room. If you're a believer, the Holy Spirit is your permanent roommate. And because of that, we have a connection of one spirit that we could not have any other way. One hope is the hope of our salvation. That a person who's trusted Christ, who's indwelled by a spirit, hopes in a salvation. Fourth, one Lord. There's only one head of the church. Fifth, one faith. That we placed our faith in Christ. Not faith in faith. We placed our faith in the person of Christ. That's the one faith. One baptism. Could be wet, could be dry. I kind of lean a little bit toward wet here because a water baptism is what identifies you publicly and makes you part of a community visibly in a local church, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. Then we have the fourfold use of all. This passage, keep in mind, applies to believers. This is a Paul's writing churches in Ephesus, believers in Ephesus. Now, I don't want to get too... Uh, deep for you here, but the theological glue in this passage is the Trinitarian doctrine. The Spirit, the Lord, and God and Father are mentioned, one, one, one. And Paul's sevenfold use and the fourfold use of all, study this on your own, it's a rich study, is talking about the Trinitarian Godhead making unity. Think of it very simply. Christ obeyed his Father to come and live, die, be buried, and resurrected to provide a salvation substitution for you and me. When he ascends to heaven, he sends the paraclete his spirit who indwells you in me. He says, I must go to the Father. He had to return. The disciples wanted him to stay. He's got to go to the Father so that he can send the helper who's going to indwell all believers so that all can be indwelt by God's spirit permanently as a fulfillment of the new covenant. So, what do you have? The Trinitarian doctrine is required for salvation. God the Father has to send His Son. His Son has to be perfectly obedient to the point of death. His Son has to obey to even return back to glory after His resurrection so that the Father can dispatch His Spirit who will indwell the believer. A Trinitarian doctrine isn't just theology for dry people like me. It's important to understand your salvation required a Trinitarian doctrine. And the churches are growing in number that don't believe in a Trinity or give any attention to it. And yet it's all through the New Testament and referred to many times in the Old. Well, much more, but we need to land the plane. If you've ever been in sales, you know there are ways to sell things you can sell things because you want to make money and you can sell a product because you believe in a product I learned this in multiple jobs I have when I was 17 I worked at a backpacking kayaking uh, mountaineering store it was two owners, two very high-end stores. There were no REIs in those days. This is before before clothing was North Face. This is when equipment was North Face. Uh, they didn't have clothing lines. They had free T-shirts. But in those days, they made mountaineering and climbing equipment. And these very high-end stores were in very high-end malls. And believe it or not, at 17, I was a store manager. Huh? And I was a good salesperson because I used this stuff. I was an avid climber, avid backpacker, avid uh, kayaker, and so I could, I could sell this stuff. And the owner boss came to me after a while, and he said, Michael, you're a great salesman, but you only sell three lines. I said, well, that's because they're the best. And he laughed and gave me some lessons. After all, I was only 17. He said, you got to sell the whole inventory. We can't just sell these three lines. i got inventory here. we got to move. I said, yeah, but that stuff's not any good. He goes, I'm employing you to sell all of it. Okay, I got the picture. But I still like these three better. Selling because I believe in something versus selling because you got to make money. And that applies to all of life, not just sales. Later on, I would be in companies where I was representing that company. I worked for the government for the year in East Texas. And when I went somewhere, I represented the Deep East Texas Council of Governments. And I spoke for them. Later, I would become a boss, if you will, and I would hire people. And when you hire someone, they are what? They are sales reps. They are representing you when they go out on the street. If you employ people, they're representing you with their work, their attitude, their trade, their skill. So a local church, when we evaluate and hire people, we want them to represent Christ first and foremost, but we want them to represent fellowship too. From the learning center greeting to the telephone greeting to the email response, we want them to smile and say, how can I serve you? How can I help you? I'm here to minister to you. If they can't do that and we can't train them to do that, we'll let them go. Because they're representing the church of Jesus Christ. And we want it to be done in a certain way to represent who we serve, who we stand for. I mean, who wants to deal with a curmudgeon problem person in any place in life? Much less a church. You want people who are representing you well. How much more you and me as representing the king? A little baby was born last week, so I heard. A royal baby. I watched about 1.2 minutes total of that coverage. I'm glad for the young couple. I'm very conflicted for the boy. What a life he will have. What an unreal life he will have. Isn't it funny the media and everybody called it the royal baby? Not the royal fetus. That one's going to be a king. Culture's funny. You have a real king. You have a sovereign, eternal king that sent his one and only son, the eternal king, to live, to die for your sins and mine, to be buried to confirm his death, and resurrected to give us life. And then all who believe in him are adopted. We're illegitimate, throwaway children that somebody adopted and put us into royalty. Eternal royalty, not a faux royalty, not a fake royalty. Not a royalty until the next boy dies and the next one we wait for comes along. But a real king, a real sovereign. Hard to keep in perspective, isn't it? The tomb guard sentinels are one of the oldest, most prestigious honor guards in the world. The United States... Arlington Cemetery has what's known as the Tomb of the Unknowns. It used to be called the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, but it was changed years ago because there are more than one body remains in that tomb. So it's the Tomb of the Unknowns. The Tomb Guard Sentinels are a prestigious group. I encourage you to read about them sometime. What they go through to not only become a Tomb Guard Sentinel, but once they're in that uh, guard, what it is required to stay in it. Uh, The detail and precision with those men and women trained is unparalleled in any branch of service. It is an honor guard situation, but these men and women, 24-7, 365, guard the Tomb of the Unknowns. And if you've ever been there, you should go there. Uh, You'll see the changing, the the 31 steps, if I remember correctly. They walk back and forth. They're inspected by their sergeant when they show up. Their weapons inspected, their clothing inspected. I've heard it takes as long as two hours to get dressed, and they'll spend an average of 30 minutes to an hour a day just working on their shoes. Everything's got to be perfect before they go outside. They have a creed they memorize, and this is the Tomb Guard Sentinels Creed. My dedication to this sacred duty is total and wholehearted. In the responsibility bestowed on me, never will I falter. And with dignity and perseverance, my standard will remain perfection. Through the years of diligence and praise... And the discomfort of elements, I will walk my tour in humble reverence to the best of my ability. It is he, meaning the remains, it is he who commands the respect. I protect his bravery that made us so proud. Surrounding by well-meaning crowds by day, alone in the thoughtful peace of night, This soldier, the one entombed, this soldier will in honored glory rest under my eternal vigilance. Over a box of dead men's bones? When you and I serve a living king? Who of us would say my standard will remain perfection? in this honored and sacred duty. You represent Christ among us into a world. So do I. We serve a king. Not a prince, not a name, not an office. We serve a king, a real king. And he loves you. And he adopted you and pulled you into his family. And he made you an heir. A wise believer will walk in a manner worthy to that with which he has been called. Father, help us to be the kind of men and women who walk in such a way to see fellowship transformed individually and corporately as men and women who know we serve a king, not an elected or appointed official, but one who's reigned forever and ever and ever. Help us as we go from here, not to dismiss your word or put it out of hand, but may it come to mind and be cemented in our hearts and minds that we walk in a manner worthy of the way you call us. We love you, Lord Jesus, as always. Help us to love you well. We pray in Christ's name, amen. God bless you. Have a phenomenal week. If you have questions or comments, please let us know at michaelincontext.com. Subscribe to our newsletter for the latest news and information. This is Michael Easley in Context. Don't let the world teach you theology.